Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dobry den, dear listeners. Uh, this is uh, Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am talking to you from Prague where I am visiting my daughter who's been studying abroad this semester. I don't know if I've revealed that before, but I think it's okay. It's sort of a last minute thing. Uh, turns out that like her Thanksgiving plans might change, so we wouldn't see her at Thanksgiving. We wanted to come out here. I was already in Europe. She was having a kind of a challenging time, and so I figured I'd come out and see her. It's been great. I've only been here for about less than 24 hours. Uh, had dinner last night, walked around Prague. Man, the city is so different from when I lived here in 1991. Jeepers. It's, uh, I think in a lot of ways, an enormous number of ways better. I mean, you have to fight your own nostalgia. Um, it's very much a cosmopolitan city, very much a modern city now, but it's still just, and it's, it was shockingly clean back then, given that it had been languishing in communism for so long. But, um, it's uh it just looks beautiful. It's just I mean at least the you know the old town, the downtown, even out in the um you know the inner you wouldn't call them suburbs, but you know the working class working class neighborhoods and that kind of stuff. It just it's it it it's a place near and dear to my heart. I just I could walk around here forever. Um and obviously the food is so much better than when um I was here. When I when I was here um, I didn't get here that early. Like I had American friends, friends from back home who got here almost immediately after Václav Havel spoke to Congress. I want to say that was in 89, maybe it was 90, where he said, you know, to the West, please send us your young people, we need you. And um, I knew a bunch of people who sort of heeded that call. Um, Matt Welsh from Reason was here, pretty well established long before I got here, long after I left. There was just, I mean, when I got here, you could pretty much always find toilet paper. The question was whether you could find good toilet paper. And while, you know, what do they say in math? All creases from zero are infinite. The difference between bad toilet paper and no toilet paper is infinitely greater than the difference between good toilet paper and bad toilet paper. But um, it doesn't mean that difference isn't important. Uh, enough about toilet paper, but it was that kind of thing where like you could, you could, you didn't just suffer for finding as an expat for finding the necessities of life, just, you know, finding a fresh vegetable was hard, that kind of thing. And now, I mean, it's like, I mean, like I was telling my daughter, 
I'm in a hotel up by the castle, and I used to walk up here with my friends because there was like a, I want to say it was Indonesian food, um, and it was like the only Asian food that we could, that we liked or could really find. I mean, I'm sure there were definitely other Vietnamese type places, but not a lot. And now it's just, you know, there's Asian restaurants everywhere. And it's, again, it's a modern cosmopolitan city. And I think that's great. Um, I'm a little conflicted about the whole Czech-Slovak divorce thing. But I do like the way they handled it, which was like, meh. I don't want to kill anybody to keep those guys. And the other crowd was like, I don't want to kill anybody to, to leave them. And so they just sort of all worked it out and... You know, if you think about ethnic divorces in, in national liberate nation, liberated nation type things in human history, it was one of the most successful um, amicable breakups, you know, in human history, you could argue. All right, enough of uh, flannel mouthing. If, if you can't tell, I'm sort of a little discombobulated. Where to begin? So um, just so you guys know, I was traveling in Italy, ended in France, um, really had a wonderful time. I'm not going to divulge too much of you know, my vacation, but um, was in a part of Na- uh, of Italy that we started in Naples that I'd never really been to before in any, you know, I guess I'd been to Naples once before, but we went to Elba, which was awesome, and went to Capri, southern Italy, particularly, I mean, there are going to be Americans and, and tourists pretty much year round, but, you know, much better to visit these places when it's a little cooler or a lot cooler given the heat wave last summer and a little less crowded and uh, just had a really absolutely lovely time. Part of the problem was I had such a lovely time that I am, you know, I just have not, it's a vacation. And also yesterday was the one year anniversary of my mom's death. And um, so I just haven't been following the news in granular way. I got screwed again by this speaker race stuff you know, last week I wrote a, my LA Times column on it. And of course, events conspired to make it unusable for the dispatch. And then this week they asked me, I was planning on taking the column off, but uh, wires got crossed and they were counting on it. So I agreed to do it and they wanted me to do it again on the speaker stuff. And then of course, events conspired to screw me again. And um, not to say that this fight over the third highest ranking constitutional officer in the country is um, all about me. But anyway, and I think we changed it well enough to to use. But like I was, you know, I was surprised by the news that the news that this guy Johnson um, actually got it. And it was very late at night when Rachel Laramore and my editor from uh, the syndicate was like, we got to change this. And I was like, just do what you think is best. I, 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 I can't get up to speed on this. And um, so I think we used it. And, you know, hold on a second. I should back up about something I said, because this is a bit of a peeve of mine. And I think it's, it's not one of these things where I think everybody is wrong. I just think the colloquial way we talk about some of this stuff leaves out important context. When we say, you hear it a lot, that the speaker is the third highest ranking constitutional officer in the United States, and the argument for the justification for that is that they're third in line to the presidency. Really, you argue second in line, right? Because it's like it's the president. So it depends where you count. You count at zero, do you count at one, right? 
is the ground floor one or is the ground floor something else? But so there's the president, then there's the vice president, and then there's the speaker. And so I get it. If you if you think that the president is the most powerful position in government, then being third in line to that position, it, it sounds like it's the third, you know, highest ranking or third most powerful thing. But you should realize it's not. Vice presidents are not very powerful figures. It's a dumb position. I understand why we have it. I'm not sure that we need it. Um, it certainly doesn't operate the way the founders originally intended. That's why they had to amend the Constitution. What was that? I want to say in 1800. Because um, it used to be that the guy who came in second was the vice president, which was really dumb because then you basically had the head of an opposing faction in this position where they could only do mischief. Um, and so then we amended the Constitution. I cannot for the life of you, life of you, life of me tell you what number amendment that was, but it was pretty early on. Um, and said they're going to be on the, they're going to run on the same ticket. The full powers of the vice president of the United States are um, to certify the votes come election time, as you may recall, and uh, to split ties in the Senate. And that's about it. Some vice presidents have more power than others because the presidents deem it so. Some people tie the era of powerful uh, of 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 powerful of comparatively more powerful um, vice presidents to Jimmy Carter because he gave Mondale some serious responsibilities, um, which I think was, I mean, not a big fan of either, but like it is a, a sort of silly thing to have this person with a certain amount of political pull and gravitas in administration and not give them formal responsibilities of some kind, particularly if you want to train them up to be your replacement in a time of emergency. But anyway, the Speaker of the House is a vastly more important and more powerful position than vice president. And you always, you'll always hear boosters of any given vice president talking about the vice president being the second most powerful person in the world um, because they all want their boss to become president and they all want their boss to seem more important than they really are. But like... I can guarantee you that when Joe Biden wants to get something done in Congress, his first call isn't to Kamala Harris, nor was Barack Obama's to Joe Biden, nor was Donald Trump's to Mike Pence, although I suspect that Mike Pence, because he actually understood how politics worked um, and could get things done and had better had really good relationships with Republicans on the Hill, that he was probably informally more powerful than a lot of vice presidents. But regardless, anyway, it's just a peeve of mine. And when I heard it coming out of my own mouth, it kind of bothered me. Um, because again, Congress is the supreme branch of government. This whole idea about co-equal branches is Nixonian propaganda. Congress is the first branch of government. Uh, and the idea that somehow the vice president is somehow, somehow outranks the speaker or the Senate majority leader in any sense other than the line of succession to the presidency is nonsense. So I have friends who have worked in the vice president's office who've made robust cases for the relevance and importance of vice presidents, so they can come at me later. Uh, anyway, this is also a way for me to think about what I should actually be talking about. So one of the only things I have been following, not super granularly, but is the Israel stuff. And I had, a, had to have a long conversation with my daughter about all of it because it is it is like poisoning social life 
here in Prague with all these expats, you know, American students and, and other foreign exchange students and locals. And it's a very depressing thing. And um, it's also very depressing just how utterly poisonous and toxic and, and at times evil, you know, TikTok and Instagram and these kinds of things can be um, where you have enormous numbers of really ignorant people bouncing around falsehoods and half-truths getting themselves worked up into righteous anger about things they don't understand. And I, I, look, that may sound arrogant. That may sound condescending. I really don't give a rat's ass. I find that the vast majority of people who, when you start pressing them about what, you know, why are you saying from the river to the sea, you know, Palestine will be free? You know, do you know what that means? Or glory to the martyrs or any of that kind of stuff. You find either they are fairly well-informed but intensely deluded anti-Semites um, or, or just straight out Hamas sympathizers, I mean, not sympathizers, you know, uh, cheerleaders. Um, and so, like, they are immune to countervailing facts because of their ideological commitments or they just don't know what they're talking about and it's fashionable and cool and gives them a certain radical chic and frisson of transgressiveness to say this stuff they don't understand um, because they've been sort of duped by a lot of people. And, you know, it's one of these things, like there are there are all sorts of things, all sorts of controversies where I often really like to hear opposing sides about, about you know, about the arguments and sort of, and I like to hear the best arguments, not the worst arguments on both sides because um, you can always learn a lot from that kind of thing. And so, there's a lot to learn from critics of Israel, right? Uh, Jewish critics of Israel, Palestinian critics of Israel, Arab critics of Israel, intellectual critics of Israel. There's, you know, there are legitimate grievances and complaints aplenty, right? And a lot of them come from Israelis and Jews themselves because it's a, just a seriously self-critical culture in all sorts of ways, both positive and negative. But like... When I hear people talk about settler colonialism, right, and how, or or you know, recycling um, warmed over friends' uh, Fanon quotes um, as if they are incantations that justify you know rape and murder and killing babies and setting fire to families. Um, I, I don't need to hear, and I know I've written and talked about this a bunch, so I'm not going to dwell on it. I just don't need to hear a lot of like, oh, give me the best argument for setting fires to the babies, right? Give me the best argument for cutting off the head of a baby. Give me the best argument for dismembering an old lady. Um, give me the best argument for bursting into the home of a Holocaust survivor and um, killing their grandkids before you kill um, them or kidnap them or whatever. I mean, there aren't, there aren't contextual arguments that justify that stuff. Um, I was listening to, I did manage to listen to about half, I don't know, two-thirds of uh, Eli Lake's podcast on Franz Fanon, uh, Fanon, I can never forget how to pronounce it, and a long conversation with Leon Wieseltier. And like, I, there's a lot of stuff that Leon Wieseltier has written over the years that I really like, and I, I've learned a lot from. Um, I think he's kind of, can be kind of, you know, amusing and interesting when you hear him talk. I thought he was great in The Sopranos when, you know, his uh, Mercedes was stolen. Um, 
But there's also just something incredibly exhausting about listening to, to Leon Wieseltier. And, uh, and Eli, who I love, uh, was doing a, just a great job of trying, um, you know, A for effort, steering Leon in, a, in, in something, not even close to a straight line, but just sort of uh, trimming the, the curves of his zigzags towards the median as best he could. You know, I was listening to it and, oh yeah, so like the settler colonialism thing, part of the problem is, is like, it's, I'll back up, sorry, because I'm, I'm name dropping here and I'm, I'm and, and concept dropping and name checking without giving context where to start. So the settler colonialism argument is that settler colonialism is more evil, more terrible than even the old colonialism arguments, because what it does is it's, the old arguments about colonialism were that it was... Um, extractive and oppressive, right? You know, British go in and they take resources from underdeveloped nations. They impose their values on their system, but that's about it, right? Uh, which is not nothing. The settler colonialism argument is that it, it, it is the by almost definitionally genocidal effort to replace an indigenous people with a foreign people. And Eli in his setup does a really good job talking about some of this stuff, and I'll get to that in a second. Part of the argument about Israel, when you hear people talk about settler colonialisms, right, is they call all Israelis settlers, which is nonsense. They also, you'll find it all over the place right now, this argument that settlers aren't citizens, and so therefore there are no, I mean, sorry, settlers aren't civilians, so therefore there is no reason to be outraged or upset about Israeli civilians being killed because essentially if you're a settler, you are by definition a combatant. So even though like I would guess and just making up this number, 75% of the kids slaughtered at that concert were probably pretty hippie, peacenik, left-wing, two-state solution, give peace a chance type Israelis, uh, they were all, in effect, combatants and uh, equally deserving of being slaughtered, um, even if they happened to actually be Arab Israelis. I mean, it's not like they went and did interviews before they murdered people. It is, And so what's, what's infuriating about this argument is that it stipulates that the, the settlers are genocidal and therefore genocide in return is justified, right? Hamas is genocidal. Its language is genocidal. Its policies are genocidal. The phrase from the river to the sea is genocidal. Um, even if you think all they want to do is expel the Jews rather than kill all the Jews, well, expelling people from their land like that is also fits the UN definition of genocidal, right? So it's just, it is genocidal. It is explicitly genocidal. They don't deny it being genocidal. The problem is, is so the evidence for the Hamas crowd being genocidal and their supporters being genocidal is their own testimony, is the words that come out of their mouths and the policies such as, you know, as limiting and as flawed as the term as policy can uh, be in the context of mass slaughter. The accusation of, of being genocidal for Hamas comes from their words and their deeds. Those rockets, they make no distinctions between uh, authentic military targets and daycare centers because they're not guided. They're just lobbed in regularly, any dead Jew is a good Jew 
um, or any potentially dead Jew is a good target for Hamas, right? Same thing as when they're just shooting indiscriminately into crowds at a concert. It is a it is explicitly genocidal in its intent and its articulation and its deed. The claim that the Israelis are genocidal largely comes from these uh, large ideological constructs about how settler colonialism is inherently genocidal and therefore you don't actually need to leave the page or the paper to demonstrate that Israelis are genocidal. And it's amazing if you listen to or read the statements coming out of places, they keep talking about, you know, genocidal rhetoric from Israelis. And no doubt there are some right-wing jackasses, you know, some of the, the sort of bad guys in the Likud coalition talk like jackasses who talk like, you know, Judeo-fascists or whatever you want to call them. And I don't like them and they shouldn't do it. And I, it, it's kind of sickening that they're part of the Netanyahu, you know, coalition or were until this unity government thing. Those are all fine things to say. But for the most part, you know, the Israeli government doesn't issue genocidal statements or genocidal, you know, policies. It's actions. I mean, it's such a weird thing to say that Israel is being, is its intent has all along been genocidal about Gaza, right? I mean, like all of these statements talking about the genocidal bombing in Gaza, if you were actually determined to do genocide, you wouldn't drop leaflets asking people to move. You wouldn't create Iron Dome, which protected Israel without offensively attacking Hamas for years, if your real goal was all along genocide, you wouldn't have observed the ceasefire, such as it was, if your policy was genocide, right? It's, it's like only when, it's only in the aftermath of Israel getting attacked um, and, you know, responding to an attack that all of a sudden people say, look at all the genociding um, about Israel, and the efforts to have peace agreements or truces or ceasefires um, or, or you know, living under the umbrella of things like Iron Dome without going into Gaza, none of those count as evidence in favor of the idea that Israel doesn't want genocide. It's just merely when they uh, respond to an attack that all of a sudden, aha, see, Israelis were, were genocidal all along. And anyway, the reason I bring all this up again is because I just don't find any of the arguments in favor of the Hamas position to have really any merit. And they come from this ideological tradition, anti-colonialism of Marxism, that uh, I just think is, is has in theory some sometimes interesting things to say and some clever turns of phrase. Um, but as a moral construct, I find, or an analytical construct, uh, I guess I'm supposed to use the word framework, I find utterly useless. And so anyway, Eli, Eli Lake, who has a, a great podcast called um, The Re-Education, I don't want to get it wrong, um, but if you search for Eli Lake, you'll find it. And longtime foreign policy writer, uh, you know, definitely, you know, pro-Israel, but one of the more nuanced guys out there on on um, on issues of foreign policy and domestic. You know, he's much more nuanced on, say, like the Russia collusion stuff than you'd expect from a lot of people, um, than you'd expect from me, certainly. But anyway, uh, he has this interesting, before he gets to Leon Wieseltier, and Leon Wieseltier was a famous intellectual 
uh, who ran what we used to call the back of the book at the New Republic. Again, brilliant guy. Just kind of, I find him kind of exasperating at times. Is extremely important hair, as people might say. Before Leon came on, Eli did this long, well-composed, uh, by which I mean actually composed compared to this rambling thing I'm doing here, sort of backgrounder on Franz Fanon, 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 who was a black intellectual, I believe he got his degree in psychiatry, um, uh, born in Martinique, and one of the foremost at least in this first book, Wretched of the Earth, one of the most foremost articulators for the moral justification for wanton, undifferentiated uh, violence against colonial oppressors and how violence was cleansing, violence was clarifying, violence was necessary. Lots of, you know, lots of folks like to quote Fanon, and I, I, I have to admit, I read a bunch of The Wretched of the Earth years and years ago. I didn't read his second book, um, which Eli and, and Weaseltier make a good case. It was a bit of a very humanist uh, mea culpa about some of his, I would argue, you know, sort of objectively evil stuff earlier. Um, and I, I, I've, I've heard that before. I believe it. I just haven't read uh, so like White Masks, White Disguises. I can't remember what it is. I'm sure you just a quick... Wikipedia lookup will get it for you. Eli touches on it a little bit. I didn't finish the conversation with Leon, but you know, one of the so one of the points that Eli makes is that um, this idea that fighting power, right, the sort of the power that intellectuals who claim to speak truth to power want to fight, uh, he gives good sort of granular take on why that sort of thinking was problematic, even in places like Algiers. Um, which is sort of what it was born of with Fanon's writing. I think I think his analysis is exactly right. I come to it from more from like a first principles kind of way of thinking about it. And by which I mean is like the problem with people who say you have that anything, any form of like resistance is one of these incantation words, one of these magic words that if something is resistance, all of a sudden it contains, it accrues to itself moral content and justification that doesn't need to be debated or argued for. It is just inherent to the word. Oh, it's resistance? Oh, well then, of course you're justified in what you're doing. And that sort of, that intellectual tradition goes back to Fanon. I, I think it goes back way earlier, but um, in the modern period, or the postmodern period, really, it's attributed a lot to Fanon. And I think it's nonsense, right? It's It's nonsense on a sort of um, as a matter of sort of categorical thinking or just pure or logic, right? Um, if all power is suspect, then the second someone come, the second a resistance movement overthrows power and takes power, then their power is suspect. And it make and so this sort of thinking, which again Eli points out, you know, the regime that that uh, replaced. Uh, French colonial rule in Algiers was not exactly nice. Uh, similarly, you know, as bad as the czars were, you can't really make the case that the Bolsheviks were particularly more moral or less violent and oppressive than what came before them. In fact, you go around the world almost everywhere where you hear where this sort of logic was expressed going back to the French Revolution, the people who said that there any that, that terror, as Robespierre would put it, right, um, the terror was inherently justified 
in order to overthrow the ancien regime. Anyone who has made arguments that appealed to that kind of logic became terrorist, became a terrorist state, became oppressive, became as bad as the people they replaced. And that's part of Eli's point. But my point is, is that just as a matter of logic, right, as, as basic, you know, I don't know, semantics, semiotics, you know, what is it Ayn Rand says, A is A, right? If all power is suspect, if all power is inherently illegitimate or evil or oppressive, then we cannot make any moral distinctions between different kinds of regimes. And if you can't make moral distinctions between different kinds of regimes, then what's the point in supporting resistance in one form versus another form or any resistance at all? If it's always meet the new boss, same as the old boss, then why do we even bother talking about the, the moral or, or you know, philosophical superiority or inferi inferiority of one kind of boss over another boss? And that's why so much of this sort of resistance stuff to me doesn't fall into the category of serious political thinking or even serious political ph political philosophy. It falls into the, the categories of fashion and aesthetics. It's a pose, right? Most of the people who wear, wear those stupid Che Guevara t-shirts have no idea what a thug and a monster Che Guevara was. They just think he's cool, right? I mean, they have Che Guevara onesies, which, you know, morally... It's a close call. What's more disgusting, a Che Guevara onesie or a Jeffrey Dahmer onesie? Che Guevara certainly murdered more innocent people than Jeffrey Dahmer did. He didn't, you know, Che Guevara didn't eat them. So, okay, there's that. Um, but Che Guevara was a murderer and a thug. Stalin was a murderer and a thug. Um, and, but there is this cultural imperative, right? It's the, what is it? It's the epat de la bourgeoisie, right? It's a shock the bourgeoisie, right? It is this idea that if an idea feels cool and arouses anger from the sort of uh, boring conservative shopkeeper class, then it must be good, regardless of the moral content of it. And this sort of gets to the, you know, and when that kind of thinking, which is all over the place, I mean, all of these idiots, like that Cornell professor and all these people, who say they were exhilarated and excited by what Hamas did, that's an aesthetic pose. That's a fashionable pose. Now, I, I will credit some of these people that they actually mean it. They like to see Jews get slaughtered. But most of these, like, 19-year-old kids on college campuses, certainly the white liberal ones, uh, they just want to seem transgressive. They want to seem like they're getting some sort of, like, meaning and, and authenticity from endorsing violence and rejection of Western norms and, 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 and you know, civilizational expectations, all, all that garbage. I mean, I don't even want to do the parody of it because it's just stupid, right? It's all pose. It's all um, bravery on the cheap for, I don't know, 80, 90% of these people. The problem is, is that you cannot mouth these kinds of ideas over and over again. You cannot think that they define you in some sort of important way without them seeping in deeper into your soul. And I think that's one of the things that shocks so many liberal Jews in the United States is to see how many people have been playing lip service to the sort of BDS, anti-Israel stuff, the, you know, uh, boycott, divest, sanction movement, and the uh, the anathematization of Israel and of, of, of Zionism, 
on American college campuses. Um, liberal Jews, you know, a lot of them thought that they could just sort of make a quiet peace with people who said that stuff and, you know, focus on other progressive ends. And they had their own criticisms of Israel and all that kind of thing. And then it turns out that for a lot of these people who been saying and imbibing and, 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 and absorbing this stuff, all these fish who've been swimming in these waters for so long that when Hamas paragliders come in and start slitting throats and, and raping people, um, a lot of these liberal Jews were like, holy crap, look at all the people who actually believe this garbage. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like Yuval's thing about how cynicism is very hard to sustain. After a while, you, you need to own your choices and come up with rational, you know, rationalizations and, and moral structures and contexts that, that, that make them no longer cynically transactional um, and make them glorious and good, right? And for a lot of people on the left, you spend years saying all this nonsense and eventually you're going to internalize it um, at a deeper level than what is just fashion, I think that's, you know, a very old story in human history where people sort of like to live on the edge. They get caught up in the moment of, or they like to live, you know, like they like to seem transgressive and edgy and radical and all that kind of stuff. And then the politics shift where you actually have to follow through on your BS. And some people say, oh, this is not what I signed up for and walk away. But other people, uh, you know, they get red pilled. They go through the looking glass. And we've seen a lot of that in recent years on the right. Um, and a lot of the left thinks the only problem with that kind of phenomenon is on the right, but it turns out that a lot of this stuff has been going on under their noses on the left as well. And people have been quietly radicalizing, um, in all sorts of different ways. Um, and when I say quietly, I don't mean like in secret, I just mean like it wasn't getting a lot of attention. It wasn't, it wasn't a loud soundtrack or anything like that. And, um, and now all of a sudden it's become front and center and it is giving a lot of American liberal Jews, you know, and a lot of American liberals who, you know, to their enduring credit, don't think there's any justification for murdering children in their beds, whether they're Jews or not. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So so call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The other thing, so another thing, again, I know I've been doing this for like three weeks, but it's an important story and I will just be fully, you know, honest about my priors on this stuff. I've made it very clear for a very long time. I'm not a great Jew. I'm not very observant. I was bar mitzvahed. I was raised Jewish. I've never rejected the Jewish label, but I'm not an observant Jew. It doesn't mean, it just was, I'm just telling you what's the fact, right? And there's some guilt that comes with that. And, you know, I try to do some of the high holiday things and, you know, that kind of thing. But I feel like when people are going around not just murdering Jews, but celebrating the murder of Jews, it kind of feels like cheap and morally cowardly for me not to sort of do the, like literally the least I could do by by speaking honestly and forthrightly about how evil and how disturbing I think this stuff is. And I think I've been really honest that like for the, a lot of the reasons I support, I mean, obviously there's a cultural affinity thing there, even though I've only been to Israel once, but there's, uh, and I, 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 I think the Zionist project is morally justified and justifiable and sound and all of that stuff. But a big part of my pro-Israel stance is the same reason why I want to help Ukraine. I think I've been honest about that. The demo- promoting democracy, delineating between our friends and our enemies, these things are important to foreign policy generally. And I think the case for defending Israel has, there's a long list of reasons for it. And some of them I will, I'm open to the charge of sort of emotional or ethnic attachment kind of stuff. That's fine. A lot of them just flow seamlessly from my, my, I think could be wrong, but my, uh, deeply held and, and sincerely, you know, thought out views about foreign policy and America's role in the world generally. So that's where I'm coming from in a lot of this. And I got to say, it's, it's really kind of amazing how, you know, there are, I, I don't know what the count is, but I think it's like 30, it's at least a couple dozen Americans who've been held, taken hostage in, by Hamas. And yes, they're American Jews. And I can't help but get the feeling that they don't, completely count as Americans in a lot of people's eyes because they're American Jews or maybe, I don't know, I don't even know if all of them have dual citizenship or anything like that. Lots and lots of people have dual citizenship with lots and lots of countries. You know, I think most of those Iranian hostages, I don't know this for sure, but it's my sense from just trying to remember, you know, who they, from reading about who they were and all that, most of them had dual citizenship, right? Most of them, the reason they were in Iran was because they had family in Iran. And I don't know that they all had dual citizenship or not, but like when they're Americans, we're supposed to care that bad guys took Americans hostage. And there is this really weird reticence to talk about the fact that some of these people being, a lot of these people, I don't want to say it's not a majority or anything, but it feels like it's like five or 10% of them are Americans. You just don't get a sense of a fraction of the outrage that you would if, you know, they were the Iranian hostages and certainly not in the hostage crisis of the 1970s, but even under just sort of normal circumstances. It's like uh, a terrorist Islamist organization kidnaps Americans. You know, if when ISIS does it, that's cause for getting our dander up. But when 
Hamas does it in Israel, it's like, ah, you know, kind of served them right. They were in Israel. They're probably more Israeli than American, and who cares? And at least that's the vibe I get. Now, that could just be an emotional reaction to it, but it is, I, I do think the silence on this aspect of things, interesting and worth noting. And I could see how in various editorial, it's been noticed they struggle with how to write about it in a way that doesn't open up a whole can of worms. And so maybe one of the reasons why they don't write about it from this perspective or don't give it the attention it deserves, because again, I haven't been following the news super close, so maybe there've been a gazillion articles on this. But just from what I've picked up from looking around, it feels like it's getting short shrift. And I think that's interesting and worth, you know, contemplating. Oh, so like, um, let's get back to the settler colonialism thing for just two seconds. So, you know, I, so I was in Elba, right? And I was in uh, various other places in Italy. And I would look up these places when um, I was there and not like deep research or anything, but just, you know, like the Wikipedia page. And it's kind of amazing. And it's true of almost every place around the Mediterranean. Certainly, um, you know, coastal cities, islands, that kind of thing. You look about how many different tribes, peoples, nations, city-states, you know, polities of one kind or another have owned, occupied, ruled, or inhabited these various places. And it is amazing to me how... This all just gets memory hold, right? Italy is just the place with the Italians in it now. Or, you know, we keep hearing about how Israel is a settler colonial project that um, is kicking out the indigenous people or trying to, you know, otherwise colonize their minds or whatever. And a lot of this stuff comes from, you know, these... Arab countries that were part of the Ottoman Empire or are one of the dozen other Muslim empires that invaded various places and colonized them in, in many of the ways that they are accusing Israelis of, which makes me think some of it is kind of projection. It's one of these, I, I, get, I get very, I'm very conflicted. You know, I have my whole thing about new ideas versus um, old ideas. So on the one hand, the case that new ideas matter and all that kind of thing is like all of this national liberation, Fanon stop, uh, Fanon stop, Fanon stop, I do not know how to pronounce his name, stuff. These were kind of new ideas, right? But at the same time, all of this sort of anti-colonial, existential, postmodern stuff, one of the only ways to make that stuff seem like new ideas is to start from a false premise that until white Europeans start invading other countries outside of Europe or seizing lands outside of Europe that, quote-unquote, settler colonialism didn't exist or that imperialism didn't exist or that, you know, that, that, that basically genocide was invented by modern, you know, Europeans or something like that. And that's all nonsense. I mean, that's a deep and pernicious and dangerous nonsense. The Old Testament is full of bad genocidal things, right? The, the, the history of the Roman Empire is full of genocidal things. I mean, it depends what you mean by genocide. So yes, in a sense, genocide is new in the sense that it's a neologism that was invented in the mid-20th century and has a specific meaning in 
international law, a meaning I don't like, by the way, because the Soviets insisted on keeping out uh, mass murder of the sort that uh, the Bolsheviks did, right? You couldn't, if you were liquidating the kulaks, that didn't count as genocidal because that was getting rid of a certain uh, economic class, allegedly, right? And there were other sort of and, you know, other sort of Soviet Union liber or Bolshevik liberating loopholes in the international definitions of genocide. But regardless, but the idea of like mass killing or trying to wipe out a people, uh, it's really old, like predates the agricultural revolution old, has existed in various parts of the world, everywhere, always over time, you know, in tribal societies, big part of the goal is to kill all the men, take the women, take the children, use them as concubines or slaves or take them as wives or whatever, but like, a, you know, genocidal erasure of the people downstream from you was a pretty common thing in, in, in pre-agricultural revolution times. And then in post-agricultural revolution times, you know, one of the great sins of, of imperialism is the, the, you know, the Spanish colonization of South America. And the Spanish did some bad things. Do not get me wrong. Like lots of finger wagging and condemnations can apply. You know, some of it was not intended. The bringing of the diseases wasn't like a plan. You know, later there was some use of like, you know, disease deliberately, but like it, that's only because they realized it was happening it had happened earlier by accident kind of thing. And including in, you know, in North America. Um, and that stuff is gross. Spanish colonialism, you know, uh, did terrible things in South America. Not going to dispute that in the slightest. Sp the Spanish did some terrible things in Europe too. I'm not going to dispute that. But, you know, there is a serious body of thought and evidence that points out that, like, as, as genocidal as you want to accuse the Spanish of being, the amount of killing they stopped by the Aztecs is at least a wash. The Aztecs, the intent was not necessarily to erase certain people, though I, I, I you know, it's been a while since I read up on this. I, w I would not be surprised if some forms of erasure were... Um, front of mind at various points. But the human sacrifice was just on a colossal scale. I mean, just colossal. You know, the you know Native American tribes in North America, I mean, some were more peaceful than others. This sort of, this is gets to my point, is like, if you, you can't just talk about how power in and of itself is corrupt and evil without talking about what you do with power. And you can't say that settler colonialism or imperialism is evil white Europeans do it, but totally invisible for the long history of humanity in places like Africa um, and South America. You know, there were African tribes that took slaves. There were, um, I mean, everybody took slaves up until, you know, the 18th century. It was so common. And, um, and so part of the problem with a lot of this analysis is it is, if you're going to render invisible or irrelevant to your analysis any heinous crimes not committed by white European settlers, variously and sometimes tendentiously defined, um, then you're going to say that colonial settlerism or, you know, or colonialism in general or European colonialism is a signature evil because you've basically canceled out or removed from the board the universal nature of these sorts of evils. And, and again, I'm not saying that they're not evil or at least not open to the charge of evil. Um, we've talked a lot here about, you know, the 
the birds of prey argument from Edmund Burke about the excesses of the, you know, the British East India Company. Um, and Lord knows I'm a defender of the American Revolution. So, you know, like the excesses of the British and the colonies, it's like was a legitimate thing to get pissed off about. And let's be fair to the British, you know, as bad as anything that the British did in the colonies, it was pretty timid and mild compared to things the British did elsewhere and that other empires did elsewhere. So part of it is this, you know, sort of, I don't want to call it racist because even though it's, I'm sure it fits many definitions of racist, but there's a sort of this anti-white, anti-European framework that by excluding the fact that a lot of the stuff that white Europeans did was not morally distinct or unique. It was technologically distinct and unique. And so you could say the scale of it was different. And that's an interesting argument to have. But the intent and the effort was no different than what, you know, the Chinese did in Asia with, you know, I'm sure various Indian, you know, you know, kings and lords and moguls or whatever you call them did, you know, what the Mongols did. Certainly the Russians have been settler colonial colonists for a gazillion years, right? And that's weird how because the Russians and their, you know, legacy Soviet Union nonsense and their hatred of the West they get a carve out for the evil that they're doing right now. And so I find it a lot of that sort of stuff sort of transparently selective where, you know, our tribe's excrement doesn't, isn't malodorous and yours is with enormous double standards there. But then there's this other aspect to it, which I think is more heinous and more problematic, which is that once you start looking at, you know, one of the reasons why the, the, a lot of people trace this stuff back to the Jacobins, is this um, introduction that's pre-Marxist, right? But it's this, it's a form of identity politics in the sense that people are, it's the rise of, it's, it's the rise of the analysis of the masses where groups are seen as pieces on a board, right? You can't change the piece on the board you can't, I mean, it's not like chess where you turn the pawn into a queen, although maybe that would work in an extended metaphor if I put more thought into this, right? It's just like um, one peasant is interchangeable with another peasant. One aristocrat is interchangeable with another aristocrat. One priest is the same as another priest. And so when you start looking at members of groups as if they are commodities in effect, political commodities, identitarian commodities, you, that lends itself to a form of thinking about how history operates where you decontextualize human agency and you just talk about the movement of human forces and the righteousness of, of rebellion from the, from the have-nots um, over the haves. And of course, Marx gives this a whole new overlay, right? So much of the stuff about the Zionist settler colonial project and all that kind of stuff is just a product of this mode of thinking. You, there's white hats and black hats, and once you designate someone as the white hat, it doesn't really matter whether the black hat is a soldier or a peasant or a priest or whatever. It's just this group needs to go. It kind of reminds me, I know people hate it when I bring up Game of Thrones, but there's this great little conversation in towards the end where Jamie Lannister is talking to um, I can't remember her name. It's played by the woman who's 
uh, extremely attractive in the old Avengers TV show. But he's basically saying, uh, you know, she says, you know, is it really worth murdering and killing all of these people just to get power? And he's like, well, yeah, because once they're murdered, uh, they'll be known around to remember and everyone will be grateful for, for not being murdered and for benefiting from our rule, right? And this was sort of Stalin's outlook. This was Lenin's outlook. This was Trotsky's outlook. This was Robespierre's tr- outlook is there are certain groups of people that are inconvenient and standing in the way of our rule. And once we can rule, everything will be fine. And that kind of thinking um, is a way to completely let yourself off the hook for making moral distinctions between good regimes and bad regimes, between uh, good resistance movements and bad resistance movements. I mean, I'm still stunned that people can think that Hamas is a good resistance movement. I mean, these are the people who are, you know, happily murder homosexuals and all this kind of stuff. And you, you have, you know, queers for Palestine celebrating all of this. And it's just amazing what idiots people can be. But that's, this is sort of my point, is that when you get into the analytical framework where you just simply decide that resistance is good, regardless of what the resistance tries to do, it doesn't matter whether the victims are innocent or had it coming. They have it coming as a group. They have it coming as a class. They have it coming in the same way the leaves have it coming when fall arrives. It's just their time to be brushed away, to shrivel up and die, and to be blown away. And that's how people talk about Hamas, as if it is this organization without agency that is indistinguishable from any other sort of free Palestine movement, um, even though they have no desire to do you know, a two nation, you know, uh, you know, uh, um, two nation peace deal or anything like that. They just simply want to rule and liquidate their enemies. But because you fall into the logic of this resistance is good thing, it absolves you from, from having to think critically or make any comparisons about it. And what is just amazing to me about it is like this, I mean, how much, how many hundreds of thousands, millions of hours over the last what, 50 years have our schools spent talking about how great Martin Luther King was, right? And how important his strategy of nonviolence was to now just sort of say, well, it really doesn't matter what the tactics are of the resistance. All that matters is success. Well, that's basically saying Martin Luther King was an idiot, right? That's saying Gandhi was an idiot. I just want to be clear, like, they weren't idiots, And part of it wasn't just that they weren't idiots. It was that they were really smart because they understood that using violence would be bad for their cause. Also, they understood as a moral proposition that using nonviolence was morally superior to using violence. And one of the reasons why, and I know more about Gandhi than I do about Martin Luther King on this stuff because I went to school on it, but like, one of the reasons why they believe this is because they believed that the, the people they were fighting against, that there were enough of them of good conscience that they could be appealed to on matters of conscience, right? That's what the I Have a Dream speech is about. It's like holding Americans accountable to the best versions of themselves. Gandhi knew that nonviolence would work on the British because the British for all of their faults, had a sense of conscience and fairness that could be appealed to. 
you know, Orwell writes about this at great length. You know, there, there, we don't know if there were Gandhis in the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany for the most part, because anybody who tried to use Gandhi's tactics in Nazi Germany was slaughtered, was murdered, was sent to a camp or shot in the back of the head in some basement somewhere. The British didn't do that. The Americans didn't do that. The same moral logic that reduces Hamas to just another group fighting for liberation reduces what King and Gandhi and these guys were doing to just another form of liberation, which as an analytical matter is not just stupid. It's also saying that they're equivalent movements, even though like the violent stuff keeps failing and the nonviolent stuff kept succeeding. Um, and I'm not saying nonviolence would succeed everywhere, but I, I've, I've said this before. I think nonviolence is a much smarter way to go against Israelis uh, saying, yeah, we're going to exterminate all of you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On the Republican stuff, I don't know. I'll wait and see what this guy Johnson is about. I find it also tedious and stupid. I do have this theory about, maybe I'll write about this. Um, well, first of all, look, I mean, I just think you've heard me talk. Again, this is the third week in a row I've rambled on about Israel, so I don't want to make it sound like I can't talk about Republicans without repeating myself too. But this was also pointless, right? It was all just stupid performative nonsense. I think it's better that this Johnson guy is the speaker than it would be if, if, if Jim Jordan got it. Because then it really would be just a straightforward appeasement of Matt Gates and his efforts, um, which would be just terrible for the party, terrible for the institution, terrible for the country. At least a fresh face lets other people sort of save face, even if they're, you know, like Ramesh was making this point about how, you know, Ken Buck's arguments against Jim Jordan apply equally to this Johnson guy. It's just that everyone was exhausted and said, oh, well, at least we're not giving an obvious win to Matt Gates, and let's just call it a day. But like a party that actually took itself seriously would not have indulged any of this stuff and would have found ways. And, now, and again, this is one of these issues where I think the party spent so long not taking itself seriously as a party that now it doesn't know how to take itself seriously as a party and doesn't have the muscle memory or the tools that it would have had in bygone eras. But you know, 20 years ago, Matt Gates would have been slapped down um, kicked off committees, otherwise punished, denied, you know, denied money and resources that are hard, you know, again, this is the part of the problems, like campaign finance rules, party reforms have made it hard to cut off money to candidates because they can get it from small donors and, and from other sources. But this whole thing just wouldn't have happened if the, 
the Republican Party took it seriously, took itself seriously and kept the mechanisms that serious parties need to, to properly function. Now, I have this theory about, you know, I went back and I read those stories about people in Matt Gates's district who think he's great and support what he's doing. And I kind of have a theory that it's sort of like the Hamas stuff. It's sort of like, it's something, you know, people, you know, people want to have their conversation pieces. They want to have their little riffs about how they're different and how they're distinctive and how um, even their faults make them some sort of at least idiosyncratic compared to everybody else, right? And so you get all these people in his district who love Matt Gates because, you know, and the arguments they give, I think, are mostly nonsense, but he's their congressman. It's like the, he's their weird thing. Um, it's sort of like Stalin's hometown loves Stalin, right? And Matt Gates is not Stalin. Um, although, you know, both had very impressive hair. It's, uh, um, but you kind of want to, if you have a choice between negative attention for some trade or positive attention, you'd probably rather positive attention, but you'll take negative attention. Um, and I think that that's what is sort of going on. And I also think it's just like people want to have, uh, what do they call it? Main character syndrome, um, which is a little different. I think main character syndrome explains Matt Gates, not necessarily members of his district, but it's this idea that you are the main character in the movie of, of your life. You know, in, in some sense, I don't have a huge problem with that. I'm a big believer in individualism. But I think the context in which people talk about the sort of main character syndrome is more about how, like, they think you're the main character in everybody's life. And, um, and that's nonsense. You know, you are captain of yourself. You're not captain of other people's selves. Anyway, that's just rambling stuff. Um, I go home Sunday. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, people keep asking why I'm posting pictures of Pippa, not of Zoe. I think I've explained this, but um, Zoe stayed at our house. Pippa went and stayed at our dog walker's house just because we didn't want, we wanted, we were going to be gone so long. We wanted to avoid uh, separation anxiety, hostility between the two of them. think it was the right thing to do. I thought long and hard about talking about my mom on the year anniversary about this. I thought about writing about it for the Wednesday G file, which I really apologize for missing. I hate missing filing. Um, it was just a travel hell day and lots of stuff was going on and I just I logistically couldn't make it happen. I don't know that I have it in me um, to talk about my mom. Um, it does not feel like a year. It is, I'm really glad to be with Lucy around now and, um, but it's tough. It's, um, it's tough in the way that, you know, Deaths in the family are always tough, which is to say in all the obvious ways and in all the, the non-obvious ways. And the obvious ways play on the non-obvious ways in novel ways. And I, I don't want to get into a, you know, vigorous personal inventory of thinking out loud about all that right now. Um, but, you know, what hits me more than the loss of my mom, who had a, a really full and impressive life and um and you know her end was not tidy or quick um and so in some ways it was a blessing you know i you know as much as i miss her five more years of her living the way she was living towards the end does not sound like a great idea to me um so you know in that sense it was her time i wish she had taken better care of herself 
um, so she could be around longer in a way that would have been fulfilling. Um, um, but the thing that just keeps hitting me and blindsiding me from time to time is, you know, being the, it's, it's a self-pitying thing. I don't dispute it. I have to acknowledge it. It's just being the sole survivor of my family. Um, it's, you know, I was in places that I was at, I was in with my family when I was a kid on this trip and it's just different. And I can't call home and tell anybody, Hey, you know, I was back at this place or I saw this or remember when we did that. Um, cause there's nobody to call. And, um, that's hard. And, um, and I do think it is a really important reminder on this trip. Um, a friend of mine was asking me, you know, what are some of the lessons from all this and all that? And he was younger and as a young family and all that. And I was like, you know, a vigorous attempt to tell the stories of your own family to your children early, I think is really important. And I don't mean this in, at all in some sort of profound ideological way. I mean, that may be part of some of those stories and that's fine. I just mean that each little family is, each nuclear family is its own little civilization and it's going to mean something to you no matter what as you get older. Um, I think it probably, we're, uh, there are lots of people who have lots of memories of their stories of their family and all that kind of stuff. I'm hardly alone in any of that, but I think we probably did it more than most because we were, um, we're just wired that way. And um, if you can get people to do interviews early, so it doesn't seem like some sort of creepy deathbed thing, you should probably do it. Have your kids grand interview their grandparents. Um, um, have your kids as best they can. I, one of my biggest regrets is I just never got into journaling. I didn't like it, you know. Um, um, I had journals every now and then, but I wrote pompous, stupid sci-fi notes and philosophy notes in them and not like about personal experiences. Um, writing that stuff down, I think, is a really good idea. And, um, um, and take care of each other um, and commit stuff to memory as best you can in the moment. Because um, there's always going to be someone who's the last one left until this new generation. And um, it just happened earlier and more unpleasantly for me than it does for some people. Certainly, I've, I'm orders of magnitude more fortunate and lucky than what happened to a lot of people in the last three weeks in Israel and in Gaza, because there's, there's enormous suffering in Gaza. And while I'll have all sorts of arguments with people about how to apportion the political blame for that, um, the political and the historical blame for that, um, a lot of undeserving people have suffered a lot there too. And, and that deserves moral and political respect. And, um, and so do the deaths of, you know, Israeli families. And um, so it just feels a little bit like a, like what it is, an exercise in self-pity to talk about my situation when all of that is going on and when, I'm, when, when that's really the only thing I'm paying close attention to. So, um, 
with that, um, thanks for listening. Things will start getting more normal for me uh, next week. Um, I do have some travel, but nothing like this trip um, for a while. And um, thanks, everybody, for listening. And I will see you next time. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.